0: That's the two opening verses to Psalm 133, and the song in its entirety is the whole of Psalm 133. We've heard enough to make our point. It's our focus this morning. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Another translation, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So, good morning. Welcome to our family gathering. Guests, of course, are welcome. The title this morning of my sermon is Porcupines. My text is Psalm 133, which, of course, is printed in an insert in your bulletin together with the sermon outline for your easy reference. Pray with me as I seek God's counsel. So, Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Did you know that a full-grown porcupine has about 30,000 quills attached to its body? When a porcupine drives one of those quills into an enemy, the body heat of the victim causes the quill to expand and become more firmly embedded in the wound. The wound festers. And gets infected. And that can even be fatal if it affects any vital organs. It probably goes without saying that porcupines are not regarded as lovable, huggable animals. Porcupines usually handle relationships in one of two ways. Withdraw or attack. When they encounter people or other animals, they either head up a tree or they smack you with their quills. And that makes relationship building pretty difficult for porcupines. Did you know that we don't have a word to describe a group of porcupines? We've got a pack of wolves, a school of fish, a flock of sheep, a gaggle of geese, a herd of cows, a colony of ants. But as far as I know, we don't ever refer to a group of porcupines because porcupines are solitary animals. The rules for relationships, that is, withdraw or attack, make strong relationships nearly impossible for them. Now, maybe you're sitting here right now and saying, Pastor Dan, what's with the Animal Channel lesson on porcupines? Well, I'm thinking that many people in the church must have been raised by porcupines, After 26 years of pastoral ministry, I have found that 9 out of 10 problems I deal with in the church are not primarily theological or doctrinal, but relational. When it comes to dealing with other people in the body of Christ, many folks tend to either withdraw or attack. Something happens they don't like or don't understand, poof, they just disappear. You never see them again. Others create such drama, difficulty, and division, you wish you'd never see them again. Withdraw or attack happens a lot. But neither of those relational strategies are what God wants to see in his people. In fact, Psalm 133, we have God's cure for porcupine churches. Let's read it in your insert or your Bible. Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Other translations, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Same thought. And then verses 2 and 3 state, It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon or falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life forevermore. God's cure for porcupine churches is unity. If there are two topics that I never pass up the opportunity to talk about, that would be the gospel of Jesus Christ and the unity of the church. Without one, you can't have a church, and without the other, you cannot succeed as a church. The gospel is the heart of the church and unity is the glue of the church. The gospel makes us right with God and unity keeps us right with each other. And God demands and commands both for his church. Listen, three things that David said about unity of God's people. First, unity of God's people is breathtaking. There is something very helpful to notice about this psalm. If you look right above the verse, the one you have in your Bible, more than likely it says, a song of ascents. Ever notice that? Know what it means? A song of ascents means a song of going up. There were 15 psalms that the Israelites would sing together as they went up to Jerusalem each year for the annual feasts that they celebrated together Psalm 133 would have been one of the songs the Israelites would have been singing as they headed up the temple to worship God, to celebrate the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And David is in awe as he watches all of God's people gathering together in Jerusalem to worship and celebrate the feasts. They're coming from different regions, different tribes, different backgrounds, different customs, different preferences, different personalities. But they're all going up to the temple together to worship the same God together. You can almost hear how how awe-inspiring and breathtaking the unity of God's people is for David. He's so overwhelmed by it that he writes emphatically. Verse 1, how good and pleasant It is when God's people live together in unity. In spite of all their differences, the people of God were united with a common bond. They were united for their need of God. They were united in their love of God. They were united in their worship of God. And they were united in their obedience to God. That's what God wanted for Israel. That's what God wants for His church. He wants our need for Him, love for Him, worship of Him, and obedience to Him to connect us and bond us in a way that supersedes all of our differences. He doesn't want us to be porcupine people. He wants us to do everything we can to be together and stay united in love, worship, and obedience for His glory, for our good, and for the sake of the gospel. Unity. Is every Christian's responsibility. Therefore, it must be every Christian's priority. You know, unity is not natural in our fallen world. Division and discord are signs of sin and sickness. They are signs that the enemy is at work. Cohesion, unity, and harmony amongst God's people are evidence of his presence and are necessary to accomplish his plan. And then unity of God's people is, number two, attention-grabbing. Again, verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You know, this verse could be dissected 10 different ways. But for the sake of clarity and simplicity, I want us to focus on just one word. Because I think it accurately summarizes everything. Everything David is communicating. It's the word pleasant. That word in the Hebrew conveys so many more ideas and images than it does in English. First, pleasant can be translated beautiful. How good and beautiful it is when God's people live together in unity. In other words, it's pleasing to the eye. Unity looks good whether it be a person or a place beauty grabs your attention unity is beautiful when you see it sacred pleasant can be translated sweet how good and sweet it is when people God's people live together in unity you know while beauty is pleasing to the eyes sweet is pleasing to the taste buds unity tastes great It looks good and it tastes great. And David says, when the people of God are united in the love of God and the worship of God, it leaves a sweet taste in people's mouths and memories. If you have been to a church for a time, you know this is true. Have you ever tasted disunity? It's bitter, it's awful, it's like rotten food. But have you ever tasted unity in a church? It's like a crispy cream glazed donut hot and fresh out of the oven. Unity is sweet and it tastes good. Third, pleasant is often used in correlation to listening to enjoyable or lovely music or singing. In other words, it's pleasing to the ear. Unity sounds right. As all the people of God are gathered in Jerusalem, prepared to go up to the temple together to worship and celebrate, David would have heard this roar of conversation and buzz of excitement. And as they sang in harmony before the Lord and as they ascended up to the temple, it must have put goosebumps or God bumps all over him. Their unity before the Lord sounded great. And again, we know this is true. If you've ever heard disunity, it sounds like you're hitting the wrong note. It's screeching on a violin. It makes us cringe. But when you hear unity, it's like all the instruments are in tune and there's perfect pitch and perfect harmony. Unity sounds right. With one word, David communicates That unity and harmony of God's people looks good, tastes great, and sounds right. In other words, no matter what angle you look at it, unity is awesome. From the eye to the mouth to the ear, unity is awesome in every way. But to whom is unity pleasant? Most important, unity is pleasing to God. God delights in our unity. It pleases Him. If you're a parent, you have a pretty good idea of how pleasing our unity is to God. How do you feel when your children love one another? How do you feel when they cooperate with one another and get along? How do you feel when they share and speak well of one another? How do you feel when they are kind and generous to each other? After you get over the shock and disbelief, it makes all of life more pleasant. That's a great picture of how God feels when his children are united in his church. Unity is pleasing to God. And unity is also pleasing to us. It is more enjoyable to live in unity And if you've ever lived, been in a church filled with grumbling, complaining, fighting, and dissension, you know quickly that that gets old and tiresome. There have been some great churches that have become completely ineffective because of fighting, nagging, and backbiting, because those have zapped passion and vitality out of the church. Unity fuels, disunity drains. And of course, unity is also pleasant for others outside of the church. Division in the body discredits the work of Christ. Listen, if New Hope Chapel is going to make a difference in our community and in our town, we have to want unity in the church more than we want our way in the church. We've got to want progress more than preference. That's why Paul often reminded the churches that he planted to practice and protect unity and harmony. In Ephesians 4, 3, he states, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In Romans 14, 19, he states, So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Why would Paul have to tell the church all of the time to practice and protect unity and harmony in the church of Jesus Christ? Because division comes naturally. Unity comes supernaturally. Division comes from the flesh and unity comes from the spirit. Unity is at the very heart of God and the very heart of Christianity. You know, God is a personal, relational God. For all eternity, God has been in perfect, loving relationship within himself. He has been expressed in three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they are, are all perfectly united in the relationship with one another. And so when God created us in his image, he made us a personal and relational beings. And we are designed to be in relationships. And of those relationships, the most important is with God himself. God desires for each of us through Jesus Christ to enter into relationships with him. But then God has wired us to have relationships with each other, husbands and wives, parents and children, children and children, friends, all sorts of relationships. But sin damages those relationships. And most significantly, sin breaks our relationship with God and separates us from him. But the central message of Christianity is that our relationship with God can be restored. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And through Jesus, we can be fully forgiven. And once we are forgiven, we have been made right with God. I think we can agree that the very heart of Christianity is that Jesus is able to unite us with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 states, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. You know, Jesus unites us to God. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus not only unites us with God, but also with each other. Jesus' last prayer in John seventeen twenty to 23, he said, That they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus' final prayer was for our unity. Why? Because our unity lets the world know that the gospel of Jesus is real. This unity undermines the gospel But on the flip side, God uses unity to brighten and to enlighten the gospel to those who have yet to believe. Jesus says, the way the world will know that God loves us, the way the world will know that he sent Jesus to die for us, is that we are united in our differences. God intends for our supernatural unity to point the world to Jesus. Our unity attracts people to Jesus because our unity demonstrates the love of God and the power of the gospel to bring us together. That's why unity is so important because God uses our unity to draw other people to Jesus Christ. What is it that brings New Hope Chapel together, that brings together third and fourth generations and people from all sorts of cultures and backgrounds, people with different politics, Some people rich, some people poor, some people middle class. It's Jesus and his gospel. Our unity demonstrates the amazing power of the gospel to overcome all barriers. And when people who are far from God see that, they are intrigued. And God uses that to draw them to Jesus. Our unity is good and pleasant to God, to us, and to others. Unity looks good, tastes good, and sounds right to everyone. And one last thing I want you to see in Psalm 133. Unity of God's people is, number three, life-giving. Our text verses 2 and 3 states, It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard. Down on the collar of his robe, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And so David gives us two different pictures, but they're very closely connected. First, in verse 2, he compares unity to the oil that was poured on the high priest's head when he was anointed to serve in the temple. Once the high priest was anointed, he was able to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and God would forgive their sin. And then in verse 3, David compares the unity to the dew of Hermon. Mount Hermon's peak is about 10,000 feet above sea level. And it it receives large amounts of precipitation. And because of that, Mount Hermon is known for its lush greenery year-round. But in the lower elevations, the land can be very dry and parched, and their most reliable source of moisture is that clouds form around Mount Hermon and dew settles down the mountain to lower levels like Mount Zion. And in verses 2 and 3, David is saying that the anointing oil is to the high priest, and what Mount Hermon's dew is to Mount Zion. Unity is to the people of God. Unity brings life. Unity is life-giving. The dew of Hermon brought physical life and the forgiveness of the sacrificial system brought spiritual life. And David says, unity has the same benefit to the people of God. It's life-giving. It's refreshing. People and churches wither and wilt in environments that are not drenched in unity. Division dries out and brings death. But people and churches Thrive and grow in the midst of unity. In the midst of unity, God pours out his blessing. Look again at the end of verse 3. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. When we live in unity, we're getting a preview of all eternity. We're getting a preview of heaven When we're united, we begin to experience the joy, the blessing, and life that we will have in the presence of God forevermore. That's why unity looks good, tastes good, and sounds right because unity is a preview of heaven. Now, never forget, unity is a big deal to God. I hope that's been obvious to you. God went to the unimaginable length of sending his son to die on the cross so that we could be united to him and united to to one another. This unity is a disgrace to the cross of Christ. If you want to live a life pleasing to God, live a life devoted to and committed to unity with God's people, refuse to be a porcupine. Proverbs 6, 16 states, These six things the Lord hates. Then one of the six is recorded in verse 19, and that is the one who sows discord among brethren. God is the one who brought us together. The fact that God is the father of all of us is what makes us brothers and sisters. And so ultimately our unity grows out of our relationship with God. And Unity must be normal, not an anomaly. It shouldn't be something we're surprised to see and always holding our breath, waiting for it to disappear. Unity should be normal, not abnormal. Unity should never, disunity should never be accepted as just the way things are. It's not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to love God and love each other, and our unity grows out of those relationships. Ephesians 4.3 states, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know, it reminds me of a story that I want to close with. I heard about a man who was rescued from a desert, deserted island. He had survived completely alone on the island for 15 years. Before he left, he gave his rescuers a tour of the one man town he had built over the years. He pointed to the first structure and said, that's where I slept. And he pointed a little farther over and he said, that's where I ate. And then a little farther over, that's where I went to church. Then one of the rescuers asked, well, what's the building next to your church? The man replied, oh, that? That's where I used to go to church. So let's drive a stake in the ground today. Let's say that unity will always be the norm in this church. I'm asking you to decide right now that unity will always start with you. You know, you have to decide that you will be a uniter and not a divider. You have to make a decision today that as far as it depends on you, unity will start with you and overflow to everyone around you. Amen? Amen? Well, service is over. I'm directing you to go out and speak well of New Hope Chapel and speak well of each other. I want you to come together during the week as people who love each other are supposed to do. I want you to go out and show your worship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for we worship the one true God. And I want you to take those bottles to show that we are God's people and we believe in life. Amen.